Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. So this morning, as a, a church body, we are able and are privileged to participate in one of the most precious events in the life of the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. Uh, now, the Lord's Supper or communion, it is where we as a church, we, we take some time and we, we remember the cost of our salvation. Now, salvation cost us nothing. We didn't have to do anything to earn it. We couldn't do anything to earn it. So to us, salvation is free, but it costs our Savior dearly. And so we take some time, and we, we, we don't do it uh, every, every month or every week like a lot of churches do because I think that kind of loses it, its, its specialness. We, we don't do it at the end of a service. We, we take an entire service and just reflect on what Christ endured for our salvation. We, we remember the suffering as Jesus died on the cross. We remember what he endured to, to pay our sin debt. We remember his, his shedding his blood for us. We remember how his body was broken and beaten for us to take the punishment that we should have taken. We remember how he bled, how he suffered, how he died, how he was buried. But three days later, he rose again to reconcile us to God the Father. And for the past couple of weeks, we've, we've been in a, a series entitled, I Hate Religion. And we've been looking at the differences between Christianity and religion. And we've spent three weeks telling you what religion, how religion is bad, and the religion of self, and the religion of, of doubt, and the religion of all these different things that we do. And so we've spent three weeks looking at the bad things about what true biblical Christianity isn't. Today, we're going to look at what true biblical Christianity is. How we can truly live a life that is honoring to God, that is praising to Jesus, and live in His power and His glory. And so, what the issue we've been looking at for the last couple weeks is that most believers, we spend our lives with God trying to live for God. We're trying to do what we think God wants. We're trying to check off all the boxes. We're trying to make sure we have all the right things in order, making sure we're going through the right motions, making sure we're going to the right church, making sure we're wearing the right clothes, we're, we're tithing the right amount, right amount of money. We're doing all the things that we're supposed to do. And so we are trying hard to live for God. Major Ian Thomas, he said this. He said, Christianity is Christ. It involves a principle of life which pulsates with divine energy and cannot be explained apart from God himself. It is essentially miraculous, even though it does not have to be sensational. It is always supernatural, lying beyond the scope of mortal man, apart from the indwelling presence of the Son of God. 
The Christian life is nothing less than the life which he lived then being lived now by him in you. See, most of us, we try really hard to be good Christians. And when we, when we live that way, when we live so trying so hard to be a good Christian and to make sure we're, we're doing everything right, we end up failing over and over and over and over and we get frustrated and disappointed and discouraged and too often give up. We need to understand that Jesus did not bring us to himself for us to live for him. He brought us to himself so he could live through us. He gave us the Holy Spirit, not so we could live a life that looks like him. He gave us the Holy Spirit because he knew we couldn't. We could never live a life to please him. We could never live a life to honor him. So he gave us the Holy Spirit so he could live his life through us. That, brings, that truth brings freedom. We are never expected by God to live the Christian life in our own strength and through our own efforts. It is a supernatural life where Christ in us begins to live his life through us. Now, it's a constant battle. As we talked about last Sunday night or last Sunday, when, when you were born, you were born with what we call a sin nature. That word's never found in Scripture, but we call it the sin nature. It was the old nature. When you got saved, that old nature was killed. The old man was passed, passed away. When, you, when something passes away, it's dead. It's gone. has no use anymore. So the old nature was killed. You received a new nature, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that, that, your, that your life has never known before. So you've got a new nature, but you still have the old flesh. And the flesh is always going to be prone to, to doing things to, to get attention, to doing things to try to please people, to doing things to please itself. The flesh is always going to lead you astray. So we always have to battle this, this battle constantly. So that's why Paul said that you know, Christianity can only be experienced as I daily die to myself. As I die to my abilities, as I die to my desires, as I die to, my, to, allow, and to, to what I want and I allow Christ to live his life through me. That's why Paul said, I die daily. His new nature wants to live for God and please God and allow the Holy Spirit to live through him. But his old flesh is a constant battle. So it's a battle we have to go through every single day. He, Paul had to give up his old methods and let Jesus live through him. This, this struggle that every believer goes through, Paul went through this. I mean, you study the life and the teachings of Paul. He wrote about this struggle more than anyone else. He said, the things I, I know that I should do, those are the things I'd find myself not doing. The things I, I know that I shouldn't do, that's what I find myself doing. You, anybody ever feel like that? You know what's right. You know what you're supposed to do, but you just you don't, you, you don't do it. And the things you know you're not supposed to do, that's what you find yourself doing. Paul says, I struggle with that all the time. It's that old man, that battle inside me. You know, Paul's the one that said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Now look, Paul was a pretty 
bad man before he became Paul. He started out the Apostle Paul. He was very religious. He knew all the rules. He knew all the regulations. He followed them to a T, but he, his heart wasn't in it. And he ended up spending his, most of his adult life trying to persecute the church and kill the church and kill Christians. Then he met Jesus and he got converted and he changed his name and he changed his nature. And he says, I, you know, I was Saul, now I'm Paul. I'm a new creature, but I still have that same old struggle. And that struggle is why God gave us four Gospels. One Gospel would have been enough to tell the story. One Gospel tells the story of the birth of Jesus Christ and His, his, his sinless life and his, his atoning death and His, his burial and his, his resurrection. One story, one Gospel tells the story of salvation. So why did God give us four? Christianity, if Christianity is his life then, lived through us now, we have four Gospels so we can see his life then. The Gospels give us four unique perspectives into the life of Christ. It, they show us how he lived. They show us how he loved. They show us how he served. They show us how he walked with the Father. And we study, as we study his life, we get a picture of what it looks like to have the life of Christ then be lived through us now. And in John 17, we see Jesus at a very intense moment. We see Jesus at a time of real crisis. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's about to be arrested and he knows it. He's about to be taken away. He's about to be scourged. He's about to have the crown of thorns put on his head. He's about to be mocked and spit on and have his beard pulled out and be beaten so much that his flesh was hanging off and many theologians believe that his, his bones would be exposed and you could see flesh just off of him in chunks and the Bible says in Isaiah that he was beaten so severely he wasn't even recognizable as a man. He's about to be taken up to the, 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 the hill of Golgotha. He's about to be nailed to a cross and hung between heaven and earth to die for our sins. But before that happens, he's spending some time alone with God the Father. He's, he's 100% God, yes, but he's also 100% man. He's still got these struggles, these crises. That's why he's, he's such a wonderful Savior, because he knows what we go through. And as he's spending time with God the Father, he invites uh, some of his closest disciples to, to pray with him. He, he brings in Peter and James and John and says, could you all just, just pray with me for a little bit tonight? Just pray with me for one hour. And he's, he's having an intense time of prayer with God the Father. And John 17, we see the conversation between God the Son and God the Father during this time of crisis. And there's some, some real tension here. Uh, the crisis that's happening in his life. And in, like all of us in times of crisis, Jesus is reflecting on his life. He's looking back on his life and reflecting on how he lives. John 17, verse 25, Jesus says, O righteous Father, 
The world hath not known thee. Now remember, Jesus, he's, he's been living now for 33 and a half years. He, he was born 33 and a half years ago. He started his earthly ministry three and a half years ago. And he's, he's gone throughout the region. He's, he's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's fed thousands. And on the night before his crucifixion, reflecting back on his life, he says, God, this world doesn't know you. This world just doesn't know about you. But then he continues, O Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it that that the love where thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus is looking back on his life. He's looking back on his 33 years of living. He's looking back on his three years of ministry. And he sums his life up in two phrases. God, I know you and I've made your name known. That's what Jesus' life was about. He didn't say, God, I did some great things. I walked on water. That was pretty cool. I raised Lazarus from the dead man. They were shocked when I did that. Hey, God, remember when I took those, those two loaves and fed, a couple of fish and fed 5,000 people? Man, that was great. He goes, God, of everything I've done in my entire life, I have known you and I've made you known to others. That is who Jesus is. He knows the Father and he makes his name known. That is an incredible thing to be said about someone. One day, if the Lord tarries, I'll die. I already have my tombstone because y'all picked it out. (laughs) But under the UVA symbol, you can say he loved UVA. But I hope it can be said he knew God and he made God known. That's the greatest thing that can be said about a child of God. These two phrases give us a powerful truth about Jesus' life that should be evident in our lives as he lives through us. So what do we notice about this? We notice that Jesus enjoyed intimacy with the Father. He says, God, I have known you. Now the word known there is the Greek word gnosko. It means to know by experience. This, this Greek word was used to describe how a husband and wife knew each other. It's an intimate word. You know, I, I know most of you. I know some of you fairly well. Some of you I've been invited into your lives and I've, I've gotten to know you and some of your struggles and some of your burdens. I've prayed with you. We've, we've gone through trials together. I've helped counsel you. But no matter how much time I spend with any of you, None of you will know me as well as April knows me. And I won't know anyone as well as I know her. It's not just the intimate act of marriage. It's that we have spent over 25 years together. We've, We've gone through trials together. We've experienced life together. We've technically, we've grown up together. And so we know each other because we spend time with each other. Jesus says, God, I know you 
not by just learning about you in the Word or reading about you in the Bible or hearing other people talk about you. He says, God, I've experienced you in my life. I felt your presence in my life. I am an, have an intimate relationship with you. Jesus looks back over 33 years of life and says, through experience, through fellowship, I know you. One of the defining marks of Jesus' life while he was on earth was fellowship with God the Father. Everything he did, all the miracles he did, all the teaching he did, every work he did, everything he did was out of the overflow of that intimate, personal relationship with God. And we see that clearly in John chapter 14. On the same night as John 17... When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, hours before, he's spending time with his apostles, and he's talking about how he's going to go to heaven, because I've got to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and see you also. And he's telling them that he's going to prepare this place, and when it's done, he's going to come back and get him when it's ready. And look what Jesus says in verse number four, uh, chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. But then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, do not do know him. And from now, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Philip is a little dense. He doesn't quite get it. So he says, look, Jesus, this is getting confusing. You're talking about going to heaven and building a mansion for me, which... He didn't say, oh, we'll get, that's another song I hate. But he, he says, you're talking about going to prepare a place for us and coming back. And now you see, you can't get to the Father but by you. But if we've seen the Father, we've seen you and you and the Father. Jesus, just show us the Father. Just show us God. And look how Jesus responds. He goes, have I been with you such a long time and yet have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who lives in me and does the works. Jesus said everything in my life, everything I say, everything I do, everything in my life is lived through my walk with the Father. When you hear my words... When you see my works, it isn't me doing it. It is the Father working through me. Jesus was a model of how to live the Christian life. He showed us what it looked like to live a life dependent on God. Jesus, the, the Messiah, God in the flesh, lived a life in dependence to God the Father. He modeled a life of intimacy where everything he did flowed out of his fellowship with the Father. Earlier in John 17, Jesus says this about eternal life or Christianity. He says, this is eternal life, that you may go to heaven when you die. No. This is eternal life, that you'll cross the Crystal River, get your great big mansion, and go fishing with your grandpa. No. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who have sent you. Eternal life is not going to heaven when you die. Eternal life, according to Jesus himself, 
is having an intimate relationship with God the Father. It's knowing God and having intimacy with God. Christianity is all about knowing God intimately. That's what makes heaven so sweet. You know, we have a lot of ideas about heaven from the songs that we sing. And, oh, you know, heaven's got, you know, walls of jasper and gates of pearl and and streets of gold. And everybody's got a big old mansion there. None of that's true for heaven right now. The walls of jasper, gates of pearl, that's all the new heaven. I hate to break it to you, but none of us are getting a mansion. But what makes heaven so sweet isn't the stuff. What makes heaven so sweet is God. Is you get to spend eternity with the God that you spent your life getting to know and being lived through. You know, as people say, man, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go find my grandpa. No, you're not. Look, and I know, I'm not trying to bash your grandpa. Your grandpa was a great man, I'm sure. I'm sure you loved him. But if you really, if you get to heaven and you want to find your grandpa, chances are you're going to find him in the same place you want to be, kneeling at the feet of God, just worshiping him. So if you die and go to heaven and say, I want to find preacher, well, number one, why? That, I don't know why you want to see me up there, because I guarantee you, I don't want to see you. You know what I want to do? I want to worship Jesus. That's what makes heaven so sweet. That our faith, the life we lived by faith in loving God and knowing God and walking with God by faith is now lived by sight. We get to see God and actually walk with God and actually spend time with God. Christianity is all about knowing God intimately. The relationship I now enjoy by faith is then enjoyed by sight. And Jesus invites us into that relationship with God. So if we're really allowing Jesus who is in us to live through us, the defining mark of our life should be intimacy with God. Now that's, that's easy to say, but it's hard to live out. If someone follows you around this, this upcoming week, you know, we, we've hired someone, we said, okay, well, this is a person, they're going to follow you around all week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When you eat, they're going to be there. When you watch TV, they're going to be there. When you're driving in traffic, they're going to be there. When you're fighting with your wife, they're going to be there. All week long, they're going to be there. They're going to come back next week and give us a report of your life. How many of y'all are willing to let us do that? I'm not. I don't want anyone like that around. But would the, the defining mark be, oh man, they just, they live their life in intimacy with God the Father? Would they say that fellowship with God defines everything about you? Everything you are, everything, that your life is lived as God lives through you. And that's the standard of what Christ-likeness looks like. The life of God lived through us. So how do we live that out practically? How do we practically put things in our life where we can establish intimacy with God the Father? Well, first of all, establish a daily rhythm of time alone with God. If you are going to live your life in intimate fellowship with God the Father, you have to spend time with God the Father. You know why you, you all, us married, y'all married folks? I know Matt and Alyssa, they just celebrated four years together. Just last week, a couple days ago, they celebrated four years together. 
You know how they fell in love and, and got married and stay married even four years? You know, you're like, four years, that's nothing. Yeah, it is, actually. But those are the worst four years, trust me. And uh, well, it gets worse. I hate to break it to you. But uh, no. you know how they, they fell in love and, and we, uh, because they spent time together. They didn't just, you know, show up at the chapel, never see each other before and say, oh, hey, well, I guess you're my new wife. No, they spent time together. They, you know, me and April, we've been married for 21 years now. You know how our marriage stays together and stays strong? Because I'm so good looking. And she just can't keep her hands up. No, it stays strong because of we spend time together. We make time, just us, to spend time. You know, we'll get together and we'll get dressed. The kids like, where are y'all going on a date? Can we go? No. Because this is us time. You three drain us. We need to recharge just us. And every couple needs that as a believer. How do I get to have an intimate relationship with God? I have to spend time with him. Now, not if you get to spend time with God. Not if you have time to spend time with God. Not if your schedule allows you to spend time with God You have to build your schedule around time alone with God. Time alone with God isn't something you can just hope to get to before the day ends. It's something you have to schedule in your life. You schedule dates with your spouse? I hope you do. You you make sure. You know how many of y'all would go through your week and say, Oh, you know what? I haven't been able to talk to my wife all week long. I saw her Sunday, ain't seen her since. Not a good marriage. You have to, de- to, to determine to spend time alone with God. And this is something, honestly, that God has been dealing with me about a lot the last couple weeks. Ministry life is, can get very so busy working for God that it's hard to spend time with God. And I've noticed that my ability... To live for God, to have his life live through me, it rises and falls on my ability to daily spend time alone with God. You know, Jesus, he modeled this for us. Throughout the Gospels, we see him setting time to be aside to be alone with God. In Mark 135, it says, In the morning, rising up a great, a great while before sunrise, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there... He prayed. Jesus modeled establishing time alone with the Father. By living my life in fellowship with God isn't just about spending time alone with God. You know, too many Christians, we, we, we like to put that into a performance box. I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I did my, my due diligence so I can check off that box. Again, we tend to think that we performed for God for the day, and then we can go out and live our Christian life on our own, but there's more to it. Not only do we have to establish a time with God, we have to practice constant conversation with God. As you look at Jesus' life, in every situation, he was in tune with God the Father. Whether he's dealing with the woman at the well whether he was dealing with thousands of people who need to be fed, he was in constant contact with the Father. Intimacy with God is not a spiritual discipline I practice. It's a relationship I am invited 
to enjoy. So not only do we need to carve out time every single day to spend time with God, we need to be constantly in contact with God throughout the day. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. Paul said, never stop praying. So that means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, be on your face praying to God the Father, right? No, that's not what it means. Because you've got, you got life to do. Billy Graham said it this way. He says, Spirit, prayer is spiritual communication between man and God. Paul is saying, never let the lines of communication between you and God be cut off. You know, we spend time with God, and then throughout the day, we live our life in constant fellowship with God. So that time, what that means is when you're in the middle of that conflict of, with your spouse or a coworker or a friend or, or a parent or a child, when you're in the middle of that conflict and tension is high, don't just leave and pray. Have a quick conversation with God. Just quickly say, God, I need you. I need you to allow Christ to live through me. Would your wisdom, would your grace, would your discernment guide and govern this situation right now? That's what Jesus did. Again, it's like a relationship with your spouse. You mean April, we see each other in the morning, we spend time together in the morning, we kiss and she goes home, she goes off and I go off, but we talk throughout the day. We communicate throughout the day. We text, we talk, we FaceTime, we, we have all kinds of fun without each other being around, and then we come together again at night. So we are spending time together, but we're also constantly communicating. That's what it is with God. Every situation, God, I need you to live through me right now. Because, Lord, if you don't live through me right now, I'm going to hurt somebody. And, Lord, I need your spirit. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Father, I have known you. He had an intimate relationship with God. But he said something else. He says, I have made your name known. So we see that secondly, Jesus pursued the mission of the Father. What's the mission of God? What's God's mission in the world today? First Timothy 2. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. God is on a mission to make himself known in this world among every tribe, among every tongue, and among every nation. That is why Jesus came to the world, to shine the light into the dark world so we could know the truth and know who, what God, know the truth about God and give that truth to other people. So the answer to the question, what is God like? The answer is found in the Gospels. In the life of Christ. But he didn't just come so we could know about him. He came to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, and to rise again. Not so we could know about God, but so that we could know God. That was his mission. He says in John 17 that he knows God and he has made the name of God known. In verse 20, look at what Jesus says. He says, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. We've been given the same mission from the Father, to make him known to the world. At the end of the day, when you lay down to sleep, you should be able to say in your heart, today I've known him and I've made him known. The opportunities to 
make God known or anyone. See, we start talking about this and we all get nervous. Like, well, I'm not a soul winner. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a preacher. But the opportunities to make God known are endless. It can be just having a conversation with a coworker. It could be just talking to your neighbor, inviting him to church. You make him known by allowing him to live his life through you. You know, some days we may make him known more and other days we make him known less. But every day our goal should be to know him and to make him known to the world because that's what Jesus did. So this weekend, have you known him? Have you enjoyed intimacy with God the Father? Have you made him known to someone else? Because that's what Jesus did. What about last week? You know, it's very easy. The enemy comes in and he distracts us with all this other stuff. And this other stuff isn't necessarily bad stuff. We all have to work. We all have to pay our bills. We have this other stuff to do. But it's distracting. But at the top, everything falls under the umbrella of knowing God and making him known. And those two things are the centerpiece of what we're about to do today as we observe the Lord's Supper. On the same night that Jesus said this, he had spent time with his disciples and he he gave them a new practice. They were enjoying Passover and Jesus gives them this new practice. And it's a practice that the church for 2,000 years has carried out. It is the practice of communion or the Lord's Supper. It's a practice that celebrates these realities, knowing him and making him known. Let me show you what I mean and then we'll... Observe the Lord's Supper this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood... This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. We see these two principles of Jesus' life lived out in these verses. So tonight, today, as we gather around the Lord's table, first of all, we are invited into intimacy with the Father. When we come to take the cup and we come to take the bread, we are not just going through the motions of communion. We are not going through a spiritual activity. We don't do this to earn favor with God. We don't do this to be more righteous or holy in the sight of God. The reason he gave us the practice of the Lord's Supper is for us to pursue him intimately, to carve out a few moments and remember what he did. He gave this to us so we could spend a few moments lingering over the truths of the gospel to deepen our intimate knowledge of him. The bread, of course, is a representation of the body of Christ. It's to remind us that God became a man, that deity took on humanity. And so when we take the bread, we are to sit and think about the glorious truth of the incarnation. 
God loved us so much that he became flesh for us and allowed that flesh to be broken for us. Then there's the cup. It represents the blood that Jesus shed. The blood that the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Jesus did more than just come to be a model for us because we needed a model, more than a model. We were broken, we were dead in our sins, and we couldn't do anything to forgive ourselves. So Jesus took all of our sins on himself on the cross. He died for our sins, taking the penalty for us. But then he rose again three days later. He rose from the dead to show that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. So we take the cup. Don't just go through the motions. Take time to be intimate with a God that loves you. Worship him. Fellowship with him. Thank him for the blood he shed for you. That is what the Lord's Supper is all about. So as we gather around the Lord's Supper, we're invited to enjoy intimacy with the Father. And as we gather around the Lord's Supper, we are invited to share in the mission of the Father. The mission is to make him known to the world. Where do we see this in the Lord's Supper? Well, the end of the verse, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. Show is the Greek word, kate, I spell that phonetically, katangelo. Katangelo. It's like cotton jello. Katangelo. It means to announce, to declare publicly, to make known. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder that we have a mission and a message to proclaim. Look, when you see the mess that our country's in, the brokenness, the hatred, the violence, the uncertainty, there is only one solution. It's not a politician. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The solution is Jesus because we are dealing with a heart issue. It's a sin Problem. What needs to happen in the heart of every human is a radical transformation that takes place on the inside that is seen on the outside. And only Jesus can do that. And the only way that they will hear about Jesus is when we open our mouth and share the gospel with him. So when was the last time we made him known? When was the last time uh, you shared the good news of Jesus with someone. See, when we take the Lord's Supper, we get a renewed commitment to share the mission with the Father. You notice how Paul ends verse 26? He says, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death, we show his death until he comes. You know what that means? That means he's coming back one day. Now, that's, that's great news. That's wonderful news for us. It isn't just wishful thinking. It's biblical truth. One day, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and when he comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those which are alive and remain will be called up together in the air to be with them and Jesus forever. And it says, from then on, we will forever be with the Lord. That's a wonderful truth for the believer. And as much as we celebrate 
That as believers, that's a stark reality that the mission we have is urgent. If that wonderful event happened today, only 42% of the world has not been reached with the gospel. So if that happened today, 40% of the world have never heard the gospel. They're not saved. They've never heard it. That means that best case scenario, if that happened right now, 3.19 billion people would go to a Christless eternity. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that he's coming. But it's also a reminder that the mission is urgent. One more verse and we'll observe the Lord's Supper this morning. 1 Corinthians 11.8 Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to examine our own heart. To see if we're living up to the model of Jesus. In a, in a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And when I do, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to ask God if there's anything in your heart that needs to be made right between you and God or maybe you and someone else. Maybe there's another believer. Maybe there's a family member that you're, you're, not, you're not on good terms with and you need to get right with them. Maybe there's something between you and God and you need to get that right with you. Maybe it needs to ask, uh, you need to start asking yourself, do you even know God? Maybe if you have never been saved, which you don't need, you don't need a ceremony this morning, you need a Savior. So maybe as you examine your heart, you say, God, do I ever really know you? And God reveals to you, no, you're not a child of God. Then you need to come forward this morning before you take the Lord's Supper. You need to accept him as your Savior. We need to examine our hearts. If you don't know him, when we pray, come forward. We have some men or some ladies who can show you through the scriptures how you can know him today. And after we pray, the deacons are going to come and they're going to pass out the elements and we'll remember and proclaim his death this morning.